Welcome to Greyhounds Make Great Pets with Rory Garay, TJ Beater, and Kathy Garay. Each week, we talk about the connections between owners and their pets with an emphasis on topics that apply to greyhounds. If you want to hear more about your best friend, stay tuned. Now, here are your hosts. Whether you're gorging out on your Halloween treats or honoring your loved ones on Dia de las Mortes, we thank you for spending a part of your Friday with us. I must say we have an exceptional show today. A bit later, Steve Saris, Greyhound owner and breeder, will be with us sharing an update on the West Virginia Greyhound racing situation and also helping us bust a few more Greyhound myths. But first, joining us in Rue One Studio is Richard Rallis, reporter for the Arizona Republic, for a discussion about rediscovering Don Bowles, a murdered journalist, which is an upcoming podcast from Arizona Republic, azcentral.com, launching with two episodes on Tuesday, November 5th. Now, for our listeners who are not familiar with the story, Don Bowles was an investigative reporter for the Arizona Republic who was killed by a car bomb in 1976 after years of reporting on corruption in the racing industry. After over 40 years of speculation regarding the events surrounding Don's murder, cassette tapes of his related phone calls were discovered, and the story of Don Bowles' life and his quarrels with the mafia before his death can now be told. And with that, I'm going to hand it over to Rory. Well, thank you, Kathy. And for me, this is a, a, it's a sad story, but it's also a very fascinating story. But first, I got to say, I am... Being from Arizona, one of the things I'm very proud of is our Arizona Republic. We have some really great reporters, whether it's Lori Roberts, uh, Dennis Wagner, who's now moved on to, um, I believe, the USA Today. I think when I read their stories, I see Don Bowles in them, that they are wanting to get down to the truth, the facts. And there are two things in this country we should never be fearful of. We should never be fearful of the courts. We should trust them and rely on them. But the biggest thing we should always have faith in and rely in helping us out is our journalists. They're the ones digging deep. They're the ones looking to find out the truth for each one of us. In this country, we need to get away from this if we don't agree with it, just calling it fake news. I'm getting tired of that. We need to have more faith in our reporters, our investigative people, our journalists. They are helping protect our com- country and keeping us great. And with that, Richard, thank you for joining us here well, today. Well, with that buildup, now this sounds <laughs> <laughs> now it sounds like I have something important to say. You do. You do. Okay, good. All, all, all journalists <laughs> have something important. I, I really do appreciate that. And, and I, I mean, I... I I'll second that, and I could add dozens more names. I mean, up and down the line from, you know, Craig Harris, who does such great investigative work, Abe Kwok on the editorial board, Kent Summers, uh, who covers sports really well. I mean, like you, Scott Craven, who finds a little out of the way, up and down in our newsroom. And I've, I've been there. Uh, I'm a born and raised Arizonan as well. I started at the Phoenix Gazette, move over to the Republic. Yeah, we've always carried that mantle of trying to do the job, let people know what's going on, and tell people the truth, tell people what's what's happening without fear or favor and, you know, g- giving people the best information they can. And we know we take slings and arrows for doing so, uh, but the, the, the crux of the job hasn't changed. And when I started looking back at 
Don Bowles' files and, and listening to the tapes, which I know we'll get to, um, I saw the same spirit and frustrations that he was dealing with. I can see us, it still resonates in the newsroom now. Very interesting. And, you know, I know just for our listeners, um, this the Don Bowles story, you cannot seems like every time you hear the story, you can't tell it or hear about it without hearing Greyhound Racing, Arizona Racing Commission, um, Mafia. And just for disclosure for everyone, I am a racing commissioner here in Arizona, actually currently the chairman. And I, you know, there were several racing commission meetings. I remember uh, Dennis Wagner would show up and it was like, great, he's here. He's, he's keeping us on our toes. He's making sure to keep us, if we say we're going to have integrity, there's only one group of people that's going to make sure we're, we're following that, and that's the journalists. Well, and, and one thing, looking back at, at the time of, of the 70s when, when Don Bowles was a reporter in this time, a reporter going to cover the Racing Commission should not be a rare thing. We should be at every state board and commission, every city council meeting, every school board meeting. When I started in this business, we were. Uh, and the way the industry has gone... Uh, with fewer people paying for their news and more news being consumed by through social media and through the website, the business model isn't there to sustain as many journalists now as there were back then. So he'll be here, here's my pitch to uh, subscribe to The Republic if you don't already <laughs> and AZ Central. It's, I think, $10 a, a month or something like that. Uh, but really, there can't be reporters doing this work if we don't have an audience that's willing to pay for it. And I think back when Bowles was a reporter, heck, back when I started in the business, we just knew the paper made money. We didn't really know how or care how. It was part of our, <laughs> we, told, we were told not to worry about how the paper made money. It just did. Uh, and I look back now and see, yeah, there were department stories. Still now on the New York Times, the f- second page of the New York Times always has a Tiffany's ad. Uh, we, all, we, you know, we used to make money hand over fist. Everyone read the paper. Now with so many options, that's dwindled, and there's not many reporters at the Raising Commission as there used to be. Yeah. Uh, so, again, for all the listeners, no matter where you live in this country or in the world because we have listeners worldwide, you know, think about Get that paper again. Help out because these are the people protecting us. And with that said, um, found it interesting. Apparently, you guys all of a sudden just found some of Don's files. How did how how did they get lost? Or <laughs> think of it like like you probably you know people out there might have a storage unit that they just put stuff in, mm-hmm. and then years later they're like, what did we store? What's in there? <laughs> we had just I imagine I can only speculate when we moved buildings from. 120 Van Buren to across the street at 200 East Van Buren. They just put some files and stuff away. As you can imagine, news stories have a limited shelf life, right? So the stories that we're talking about today in a year and hour will just be, oh, yeah, I remember that happened. But <laughs> we might not want to dig back into the archives and look. Uh, Don Bowles' materials were saved. Uh, and a lot of other reporters' materials that looked into what what he was looking into and the circumstances of his death, those were saved as well. They were put in a warehouse, and they decided to look through that warehouse, see if we still needed to keep the warehouse. But what was intriguing was a series of half dozen tall filing cabinets that were barred shut. There was a steel bar oh up and down that was padlocked to them. Of course, we couldn't find the key. <laughs> 
<laughs> so that's why my, they have sledgehammers. <laughs> right, we, right, with my bare hands, with my editor's bare No, well, we hired a locksmith who picked the lock and was able to get inside. And it was my, uh, my editor, our, our executive editor, Greg Burton, who at the time was fairly new to the city, fairly new on the job. He looked through and quickly realized this is Don Bowles stuff. And he found me, Arizonan, born and raised, he knew, and that I might know some of the names and institutions that might right. be in there. Uh, so some, being, a, being a kid here, knowing what Hobo Joe's was f- pays off. You know, here he, sure, people would know Goldwater, yep. uh, yep. but to know a name like Burton Barr or Shattig, uh, to, to put those threads, you know, uh, not Terry Goddard, but his father, Steve Goddard, you know, uh, Sam Goddard, to know those names, I think he, he knew I, I, would, I was a correct person to go down there and look. As I started looking through these files, I realized other reporters had probably gone through them as well. But I saw a bag, a, a manila envelope filled with cassette tapes. And I thought, well, that's new. Uh, we've never, as an institution, we've always put out a print newspaper. We'd never really played with audio now we are, you know, we're doing right. podcasts, right. we do video stories and audio stories. So I thought, well, maybe there's something here. And I had no idea what I was going to find, but I thought maybe there's a story here. And really the story we're telling in this podcast uh, that comes out Tuesday, it's not necessarily the story of Don Bowles's death. It's something that happened to him in 1970 that fundamentally changed his life who he was, it does involve racing. It does involve his look at the, at the racing industry. And the people who controlled the Greyhound tracks came after Don Bowles. Like before he died in 76, they came after him in 70 looking to kill who he was. They were looking to kill him as a man, as uh, his spirit. And they came really close to succeeding. And the story we're telling, it's something that most people, it seems like they forgot about. By the time Bowles died, it wasn't something that was discussed much. But I have reason to believe that Bowles was still obsessed with this story. Bowles was still thinking about it when the bomb went off under his feet. Uh, So that's the story we're telling. Of course, any story that we tell about Bowles is probably going to include the fact he died. I mean, that's the major element. But the story we're telling actually takes place in 1970 and involves Phoenix Greyhound Park and his look at the institutions that controlled it at the time. Wow. Very interesting. Yeah. And I, I know I was just doing a little more research on the story. And again, the, yeah, the names that come up, it's just almost like a who's who of Arizona, Goldwater, um, Babbitt, um, even the governor at the time, um, um, now I can't remember his name, uh, Raul Castro, I think. Raul Castro and oh. Jack Williams. Um, yeah. yeah, and it's just like, wow, it's, it's the who's who of Arizona. He was looking, Bowles was looking into, at the time of this, he was looking into uh, corruption at the Racing Commission. Apology. <laughs> Not, that's gone now. Uh, but he, he was finding the, the, the one or two honest racing commissioners who were looking to speak out against the ones who seemed too cozy with the tracks. He was also looking into the regulation or lack of regulation in the ownership. Uh, at the time, all of the tracks in town were owned by one entity. Uh, it was a family called the Funks, F-U-N-K, 
we, we're not on FCC, but still, I want to make sure I pronounce the ad correctly. As we're taping the podcast, I have to make very sure I'm saying the Funk yeah. family. And a company called Emprise. It was a mashup of Inter- Enterprise and Empire. Emprise. They controlled the track. So Bowles was writing stories about that, and really the tracks didn't like it. It's fascinating to look back at the, at the archives. The Phoenix Gazette and the Arizona Republic both owned by the same company. Uh, Eugene Pulliam was the publisher. Eugene Pulliam and his wife, Nina Pulliam, her name is on the animal shelter in South Phoenix. She was an animal lover. And they did not like dog racing as a sport. The Pulliams hated dog racing. And as a result, you could find the racing results in the pages of the Arizona Republican Phoenix Gazette, but nothing else. There were no stories about the industry. Phoenix Greyhound Park mm-hmm. renovated and, you know, opened tracks all around the right. state. The, the Republic and the Gazette gave the industry no coverage, seemingly on orders of the publisher who thought that maybe Greyhounds make great pets rather than things to put a, a dollar on. Uh, and I think that you look back, I looked back in the archives and I saw what looked like sports columns about what was going on in the racing industry, but they're actually paid advertisements. The, the Greyhound parks were so desperate for coverage, they bought ad space that looked like it was a sports column that just gave racing news because they felt the, the papers wouldn't give them a, a, a fair play. Um, and at the time, you think back, I mean, uh, the only entity left is Turf Paradise, right? I mean, uh, dog racing is, yeah, is gone. banned yeah. Yeah. in the state. You couldn't run one if you wanted to. At the time, the Greyhound Park, I mean, I remember as a kid going by it, you saw the big blue sign that said dog racing yeah. and a dog with a number on it running. Uh, I remember as an adult going a couple times. It was huge in the 70s. Think Definitely. of all that bottled up casino energy. Right? Mm-hmm. I'd like to go out. <laughs> People want to go to the casinos. People have, yeah. a, have a need for, for vice. Uh, so at the time, the only outlet for that was the Greyhound Park and Turf Paradise. The Greyhound Park had, a, had just this amazing grandstand. It's still standing there. Yes, it it's is. It's still standing there outside Park and Swap. And it was built so finely. We went out to look at it uh, for this reporting on this podcast. It was built so beautifully that even abandoned, it still is untouched. Like the yes. glass doesn't have a crack in it. It's still everything around it. The track is <laughs> has gone back to the desert. Life after people. <laughs> <laughs> it is weird that the you know, the desert has reclaimed the track, but the building itself. There was so much money uh, being poured in there that the building itself was so beautiful and immaculate. Well, even with uh, Tucson Greyhound Park, and I know in the last several years, that track looked really, you know, it didn't look so great, but I know that years ago they had redid that, the same family emprise, and I think the Funks at that time had redid that track, and it looked really great. Uh, but, yeah, as you mentioned, there is no longer Greyhound Racing here in, in Arizona, just uh, Turf Paradise and also now Arizona Downs up in Prescott Valley. And I, and I don't know, and you might, uh, you, you probably have a more historic background on this. I don't know what happened to make dog racing just lose uh, the, the attention it had. What, what happened to make people not want to go anymore? To be honest, what you said about um, the woman who, who's named on the shelter, um, 
that attitude that this was bad, that there were, and, and back then, yes, there were some issues. You know, you have to be honest about it. But I think it just got a bad connotation for the treatment of the dogs and, quote, quote, the mob is involved. And you go anywhere across the United States. And, you know, there'll be that little undertone that this is a seedy thing. And it's really not. But it got bad press or no press. And it just kind of went downhill from there. And we're, we're seeing the same thing in, in horse racing. Yes. Horse racing, yes. I mean, you're seeing the same thing. They're, they've, they've picked a few things and they're, they're attacking it. Um, now, not to say that there aren't changes that need to be made. I can tell you that as a racing commissioner, there, there are things we need to do and we need to focus on making sure there is always integrity and we don't bury our heads in the sand and act like nothing happened, which, is, which I think is what happened with Greyhound Racing years ago in the 70s. Some things happened. We all know about what happened here in Arizona with the Greyhounds found in the uh, Orange Grove, I think it was. So many people just buried their their heads in the sand. It's like it'll go away. They'll they'll run their story for a couple of weeks, and then then it'll be put in this warehouse, and they'll forget about it. <laughs> there were there was a faction of people that never forgot about it and kept using these stories, and they would build on them. Like when I came to Arizona, I was immediately told, "Oh my God, you don't want to hang out with those guys because they killed a reporter." And it's like, "Well, who's they? The owners of the track." So they they took some bits and pieces of truth. And then built, added on to it to make Greyhound Racing really look terrible. Yeah, and they did look at the Funk family, and I, I mean the when Bowles was lying in the in the parking lot of the Hotel Clarendon, he was saying a lot of things. But what people were able to get out of what he said were basically mob and emprise. He mentioned the person he was supposed to meet at the hotel, and that's where police started looking. But he thought, and this is why I think the story we're going to tell in the podcast was still on his mind, that if someone was going to come after me, it was the mob and Emprise. It looked like, from what the police investigation showed, um, the, that Emprise did not have anything to do with it. The Funk family did not have anything to do with it. They were looked at. Um, but even a congressman who was sort of on Bowles' side for all this uh, said publicly and told police, that's not the way – Emprise would work. They they would go after you with lawyers and public relations men, <laughs> but they would not come after you with a with a bomb under your car. Uh, it so it, it's not involved, but I do think this the story we're telling. He was so consumed with with the dog racing industry, they came after him so hard, attacked him so personally that it was still still on his mind. He wasn't really looking at the animal abuse of the dogs. He was looking at the money, and I guess if you're looking at where organized crime goes, Correct. they're going right. to go where there's money to be made if there's a way to skim off the, the top. So uh, he was looking at, at how much money was being made and how much money uh, was being soaked in through corruption. Exactly, and I think we should, uh, for our listeners, know the only person that was charged was – was it John Adamson, I believe? There were, no, there were three people. Three people uh, charged. Adamson, R- Robeson. They were the two char- that were accused of essentially assembling the bomb and planting it under his car. Uh, Adamson supposedly planted it under his car. Robeson detonated it as soon as Bulls backed out. They said, Adamson testified, they did so under the orders of Max Dunlap, a businessman who essentially said there's a list of people that a friend of mine wants killed. Uh, Bruce Babbitt, the attorney general at the time, later became governor later became Secretary of the Interior under Clinton, and a guy named uh, 
King Alphonse, who was a he was a publicist for the racing industry. I mean, he, he was a former publicity man for the for the racing uh, tracks, who then became a whistleblower. Uh, oh. But those were the three charged. The case had so many twists and turns. It ended up, you know, everyone was convicted and then appealed. And so at the end of it, uh, Adamson did his time, was found guilty. Robeson was found not guilty and acquitted. Uh, Dunlap was also found guilty. All three men are, have now passed away. So any stories they had to tell, gone. unfortunately, are, are now gone. And I do think uh, Adamson, I believe, he was a greyhound breeder owner, I think, if I remember right. And so that he, might might have been the really the only real connection to the greyhound racing industry. Because uh, as you mentioned, um, Emprise, which is now Delaware North, none of them were ever, that while they were looked at, there was never any charges, although anti-racing factions took bits and pieces of the story and you know modified it to help their uh, their cause to bring about end of racing well, racing and that's why i think this story and the podcast that's going to be coming up on the fifth um is a benefit to what's going on now and those of us who are in adoption those who are involved in racing across the country you can't ignore history whether it's good or it's bad um this story will set some truths, as Rory said, where those who are against racing will take bits and pieces and old history and twist it. It's not common knowledge to anybody now. You know, as you said, last year's news stories, try to find info <laughs> on them. So this, I think, will be a really interesting and necessary in the Greyhound community, both racing and adoption. Yeah, it's a story. I mean, it's a story about a lot of things, and I think if you're if you're listening to this or, or seeing this from Arizona, obviously this story resonates. This is this was a major story here, but also it's a story just about some of the universal truths about people going up against powerful entities. It's a story about journalism and the frustrations reporters have in trying to ferret out the truth and and get the public to pay attention to what they believe is is important to see. Uh, Frankly, part of it is I had never heard Don Bowles's voice until I'd never. I mean, he hangs his picture hangs in our newsroom, and I've seen it every day that I've been at the employee at the Republic. I never thought about so he's just been a picture on the wall. I never thought about him moving or speaking. I never right. thought about what his voice would sound like. And at random, pulling cassettes out of this Manila envelope, having no idea what was on them. When they were speaking, what they were speaking about, who was talking, it took me a while to piece it together. But uh, he identified himself on about midway through the first tape that he says, this is Don Bowles. I was like, I had to stop. And I was digitizing him. But it took me a while to process, this is that guy. This is his voice. This is what he sounds like. And not just a bit of his voice. I'm hearing him do his work. Uh, I'm hearing him have conversations, hearing him interview, hearing him probe for the truth, hearing him be a little uh, obstinate uh, at times, a little, a little bit of a jerk <laughs> to sources, you know, yeah. like yeah. being a little irrationally tough. Also hearing him be laugh and joke. There's even some dark jokes. I don't think – I think it only stri- strikes my ear because I know how the man died. But there's some gallows humor there where, you know, there, he was talking to a funeral uh, parlor owner who joked with Bowles, I can get you a wholesale discount if you want. And Bowles says, well, I'm only 42, so I expect to be around for a good long while. And that 
it, yeah. it strikes me because I know how he passed that the kind of jokes we might make about meeting an untimely demise. But I feel like I know the man a lot more having heard him do his job. And I hope listeners of the podcast will feel that same way too. Right. Now, um, for our listeners, can you t- where will we be able to hear this? It is on all the places you normally get a podcast. So, uh, the iTunes, the Spotify, the Stitcher. Uh, if you wish, call me up and I'll just read it to you over the phone <laughs> if that's easier for you. But it's probably better. I probably won't jog alongside you. <laughs> but again, I mean, it's, it, is, it is built around these tapes. It's, it's, a, it's a time machine in a way to get you back to 1970. Uh, you're hearing rotary dial Telephones. Oh my! <laughs> You're hearing the importance of a switchboard operator who's telling Bowles, "Your dad's on line one, and the governor's on line two. Uh, tell my dad I'll call him back. Put <laughs> yeah. the governor through." You know that. Well, and, and another thing, I think it's fascinating. You as a reporter, you've been on in the beginning. You're now in the digital age. You know what type of work Don had to do to find these stories. It was legwork. It was, you know, writing down things by hand. He didn't just go to his computer and go, oh, okay, I'm going to Google him and see what's up, (laughs) you know. So, you know, that's, I think, to both Rory and I, why we admire the work that you do and the other reporters at the Republic do, because you're doing it the way it should be done. It, 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 old school is the way. And, I, and I, again, as a, a person in an official capacity as a racing commissioner, I, I appreciate that there's journalists, not always at our meetings, but they do, you know, when you do come, you're, you're keeping, our, keeping us to, you know, keeping a look at us. That we, we're not going to get away with anything if we are corrupt. And that, that is something I feel is important because for us everyday citizens, we need to know our politicians, our whoever's representing us, are doing the thing they're supposed to do, and, and there is no corruption. And sadly, I think we need we need more people buying papers because we need more journalists, especially in this day and age with what's going on. Well, I guess the default setting is uh, there's actually a great comic strip that runs in the Republic called Pearls Before Swine. But yes, he makes, he I makes, love that. He makes <laughs> references every so often to the lack of, of reporters being around. But I guess, yeah, as he points out in the comic strip, but the default setting is we just trust our government to do what's right. Uh, and the, the framers of the Constitution, I mean, there's only a couple jobs mentioned in the Constitution. And it's like outside of government, it's a priest and reporter or, or preacher and reporter, uh, that they thought there needs to be an independent press in order to, to serve a, a larger check on the government. You know, it's, it's exactly. why it's called the fourth estate. That, and so I, I appreciate the compliments, but th- that is why a lot of us got into it, not necessarily for fame or fortune, but because it's helping be on the side of the, of the people, uh, helping them know what's happening in government, in sports, uh, how they're spending their money at restaurants or, or bars. Like we're, we want to be an advocate for our readers. We're, we're a deep part of this community. Everyone in our newsroom, and like you say, we get, we get pummeled all the time with the fake news brush, <laughs> but we're in the community too. Yeah. We, yeah. we pay our taxes. We, wanna f- we root for our teams. We, we, <laughs> we want to know we're spending money at the best Italian restaurant. Uh, we're with you. And so we're on your side, and I, and I hope you, that, that, that that still comes through because it was true in Bowles' age, and it's still true now. Thank you. I do have one question. I don't know how much time we have left. Well, we'll let you go. And then okay. We'll... All right. 
out of all your research on this and, and everything you put into it, what is the one thing you learned about Don or now feel about Don that you did not know before that was like, wow? I think the thing that, that strikes me is how at the time he thought no one was paying attention to what I'm doing. Really? I'm, I'm uncovering corruption and yet the same bozos are being reelected, you know. The, and I thought, boy, I could see that in our newsroom now. <laughs> you know, we're investigating uh, whether it's uh, charter school self-dealing or, I mean, you know, the, the problems that Dennis Wagner uncovered at the VA, all the stuff that you think, boy, it, is it having an effect out there? And the fact that he was having those same frustrations back in 1970, back when it seemed like everyone read the paper cover to cover every day, uh, that surprised me that that frustration about how the audience reacts to a story is was so universal yeah that that's interesting i mean just for the fact of you know you guys are doing the right thing and you strive to do the right thing and you it's that feeling of nobody cares nobody's listening nobody's paying attention <laughs> but we are Here we are and we appreciate it and we also appreciate you joining us today this thank is you exactly. really great and to everyone down there at the arizona republic thank you as a citizen thank you guys for and gals for living up to Don's legacy and doing a, an outstanding job. You know, you mentioned Dennis Wagner with the VA as an ex-military man. I, that made me so happy to see what he did there, knowing he's, he's fighting for our, our veterans. And I think Don Bowles, we can see Don in every one of you. So thank you again for oh, for everything. I'll take that back to the newsroom with me. Thank you for having cool. me. Uh, yeah, the podcast on easycentral.com somewhere. <laughs> well, we'll, 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 we'll be sure to spread the word we'll um, on on our sites and everything, but you know, we'll get it we'll get it out there and we'll be listening. All right. Thank you so much. And with that, we we need to take the dogs out for a break and we will be right back after these messages. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Want an insider's pass to everything that goes on in Hollywood? Join Summer Helene every week for Behind the Scenes. Summer Helene is known as the Duchess of Hollywood because she knows the insiders, legends, and celebs and brings the stories, the gossip, and the backstage scoop. It's the real Hollywood, though, so this program is for adults only. Behind the Scenes can be heard live every Friday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time and 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have you ever experienced the joy of living? Not just aspects of your life, but the true joy of life itself. Barry Shore has. You could call him an ambassador of joy. From a successful entrepreneur to becoming a quadriplegic due to a rare disease to his ongoing recovery through swimming and physical rehabilitation. Barry now presents his gifts to others as host of The Joy of Living. All you need to do is tune in. Listen live every Tuesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time and 1 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Variety Channel. 
Psych Up Live with host Dr. Suzanne Phillips offers a psychological perspective on coping with common and current life issues. This show addresses topics as varied as marital stress, insomnia, depression, raising teens, campus violence, and building self-resilience. Listen in as Dr. Phillips and her guest experts share the latest in books, findings, and information that will inform and enhance your life journey. Psych Up Live is heard every Thursday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Attention. If you're a parent, educator, social worker, or civic or religious leader, the most important program you'll hear this week is Exploited, Crimes Against Humanity. Host Opal Singleton and her guest show how our children and others are being dangerously lured by predators through the dark web, social media apps, and games. Beyond that, the program looks at trends in human trafficking and more. You'll never think of the Internet the same way again. Listen Thursdays at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Looking for the best show about horse racing and handicapping? Want to play the ponies? Join us every week for Winning Ponies with John Engelhart, racing's regular guy, where you'll go inside and behind the scenes with the top jockeys, trainers, agents, and handicappers in the world of horse racing. This show is the perfect complement to the Winning Ponies handicapping website. Listen for top plays for the weekend and the spot play of the week and win prizes just for calling in. Winning Ponies with John Engelhart is live Thursdays at 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific on the Voice America Sports Network. Are you finding your frequency? It can be described as that space between failure and success. It's the future of digital media. It's finding your voice. It's engaging topics, content, and ideas. Jeff and Ryan discuss the digital media space and all of its aspects. It's about making the mistakes, taking the chances, summoning the intestinal fortitude to step out of your comfort zone, and discovering what you can accomplish when you decide to try, decide to learn, decide that you have something to say, and find your frequency. Live Fridays at 12 noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time, on the Voice America Variety Channel. The GPA, that's Greyhound Pets of America. If you would like information on how you can adopt an ex-racing Greyhound, call 800-366-1472. These dogs are fit, healthy, happy, playful pets, good with children, and oh, do they love lots of hugs. Adopt a cool Greyhound today. Call 800-366-1472. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. are listening to Greyhounds Make Great Pets with Rory, TJ, and Kathy. To find out more about the show and what we do, please send an email to gmgp3 at yahoo.com. That's gmgp3 at yahoo.com. Now, back to Greyhounds Make Great Pets. 
Yes, indeed, Mr. Medium Voice Announcer Guy. We are back with more Greyhounds Make Great Pets. I'd like to remind you that registration for the Solvang Gathering in picturesque Solvang, California is now open. And the event will be held January 9th through 12th, 2020. Visit the Solvang Gathering's Facebook page for more info. And Sandy Paws, Great Fun in the Suns. 2020 dates are March 11th through 15th, and the event will be held at Villas by the Sea Conference Center on beautiful Jekyll Island, Georgia. It's a great spot for a graycation. For info and updates, visit their website at www.sandypaws.org. And don't forget, <coughs> tomorrow, November 2nd, 2019, is the date. For the 29th annual Arizona Adopt-A-Greyhound reunion at Para Club in Tempe, AZ. The event runs from 10 a.m. till 2 p.m. And there will be a fun run, games, shopping, and oodles more. Aggie has greyhounds available for adoption, so you just may meet your new BFF. Plan to spend a day in the park and support greyhound adoption. Rory, will you be there? Yes, I will be I'll there. I'll be there, too. But and what? part of that oodles of whatever, yeah. I will be speaking. Actually, I'm not speaking. We're taking questions from the audience, Ooh. and I will be ask, answering everyone's questions, as much, well, as many as I can. Okay. Well, if you can. But I'm going to stop babbling. Maybe you should, too. Yep. And we are going to welcome our guest for the well, second half. And we got we got to re- welcome our partner in crime, oh, TJ. That's what, yay. Welcome. Hi. Hey. Hey, how we doing? We're doing great. I actually, because of that little glitch, I got to listen to the, the first part. And it's very intriguing stuff. Yeah, very intriguing. And also how... You can see how the anti-racing faction was able to take some some bits and parts of truth, and they just ran with it and made it a bigger story. They made it out like it was the Greyhound racing industry that killed this reporter. But in the end, we've, we found out that it really wasn't them. It was others, but they ran with it, just much like as we're going to hear from uh, Steve Saris. And Steve, are you there with us? Yes, sir. Hey, how are we doing today? Pretty good. How are you guys doing? Doing good. And I know you you yourself have probably heard and have seen a lot of the myths. And I know there was another one out here in Arizona, which I think you'll be able to talk to a little bit about what's going on there in West Virginia. There was always the myth out here that the uh, the tracks were getting a tax break and us citizens were paying for this. And what people didn't know is the tax break tracks were getting was because – the state had signed compacts with the tribes and allowing the tribes to have racinos or not racinos, uh, casinos. So they figured since we're going to give the tribes th- this big, big thing of allowing them to have casinos, we've got to help out our tracks as well because they're providing jobs or providing uh, money to our, our economy. We need to you know, give them a little break here. And that's what it was about. It was not just some tax break that us citizens were losing out on. Um, so can you kind of tell us a little bit of uh, this one big myth I know I keep hearing on there in West Virginia, about 15 or so million dollars, uh, how certain factions are making it out like it's the people's money that should be going to other things? Sure. Um, the money that is generated is what forms the purse pool. However, that money is generated by gaming dollars, not tax dollars. It's, it isn't like someone's paying state taxes and then they take a portion of their state taxes and then give it to the Greyhound industry. 
Um, what happens is people come in, whether they live in West Virginia, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Kentucky, uh, Washington, D.C., wherever, and they gamble and they go to, to the, the racinos and gamble and wager, and then a portion of that money, which was pre-agreed upon by the state, the counties, the live racing industry, and um, at the time they were just racetracks, that, that number and that percentage was uh, pre-approved and pre-agreed on, and then they take that money and it goes into a, a purse pool, and then we have to compete for it. Um, they, the antis like to use the word subsidy because it, it inflames people. They're like, well, why should I pay taxes? And part of my money goes towards um, this industry, even though I may or may not agree with it. Um, if you don't gamble, none of your money goes towards that purse fund. Uh, that money is a direct result of gaming dollars, and the majority of which tends to come from out-of-state individuals who come to the state of West Virginia in the form of tourism to gamble. And what, what a lot of people don't know, um, this money that goes into the purses, that goes to kennels, that goes to paying for jobs, that goes to paying for vet care, that goes for paying for food and many other things. So in essence, that money is going right back into the economy there and helping strengthening, I would think, the West Virginia economy. It is. Um, when you think about it, too, we have to compete for it. So I have a kennel of dogs. There's 84 dogs in my kennel in Beach Bottom, West Virginia, and we have to compete for it. If our dogs do not perform well, we get zero dollars. I mean, if we don't finish first, second, third, or fourth, we get no money. Uh, we get no purse at all. And I I've seen it happen. I actually, from New England, I kept my one of my last checks on a kennel that I had, and I believe it was for a couple dollars, you know, by the time we ended up having deductions and whatnot, it was just nothing. It was negligible. In, in fact, it was a major um, financial loss for us as a kennel, but it was because we had a bad week. We didn't have adequate dogs that were competitive enough to race there. So when you hear subsidy, that's in, in my head and in most people is that's a handout and it just isn't that. You have to come in, provide some of the best dogs that you can have and compete with so that you can compete for that purse money. So a lot of it, like you said, you have to have um, really good employees. You have to have really good equipment. You have to buy top of the line uh, dog food, you know, which goes against one of the other anti um, racing myths that, you know, you're feeding them this horrific food. Well, it just doesn't make any sense to feed a dog bad food because you're just going to have dogs that are going to get sick constantly. It just creates more work and havoc on everyone. But that money does, it goes into hardworking individuals pockets that work for the kennels. You know, most of them are uh, six day a week employees, some of them seven day a week employees, single moms, families, and they use that money and they, they just basically put it back into the economy of West Virginia. And another myth that the antis tell you about is they throw that number out there. Well, that's, pre-tax dollars you know we have to get taxed on that afterwards and we're just recycling it through the uh, state and local economies exactly i was uh, just talking with a friend uh, yesterday and here in arizona we finally got back the breeders award for the horses and she was telling me how exciting she it was that she's she just got her first breeders checks and how how that's going to help her with the farm and how she'll be able to invest it in things and improvements, be buying 
supplies from Home Depot or food, you know, one of the feed stores. This helps out our economy. And the, the antis have, unfortunately, have driven so many false lies about it. And we, we've got to, the people got to understand, Greyhound Racing does provide a lot of jobs and a lot of opportunity for people. And I know, Steve, you're also um, on the board of directors of NGA. And I know TJ, you know, TJ, you, she loves to tell everyone she'll take a lie detector test. And I'm sure if somebody will would take her up on it, she will do it and pass with flying colors, correct, you, TJ? That is absolutely <laughs> correct. And so far, no one has uh, taken me up on that offer, but I'm still more than happy to do so. That's probably because they're chicken because they know you're right. But the, the industry has come a long way from the, the, the days when Don Balls was killed to where we are today. Yes, there were some negative things that happened a long time ago. But today is not yesterday's Greyhound Racing. Today is people busting their butts to take really great care of these dogs and ensuring working with Greyhound Adoption to make sure they go into homes and ensuring that these dogs are doing what they're bred and love to do. And as always, uh, Greyhound makes a great pet because of the way they were treated. Yes. People like Steve Saris and... um, Mike Strickland. They- there was one thing that I did want to ask Steve if, if anyone had considered. Um, in, in you're talking about the economy, and of course, being from from Florida, the the jargon that that you hear there, we've we heard there in Florida, um, in many ways. And I think there's some things that people aren't realizing. Um, I'm using examples, sort of. Um, it just wasn't this. Past weekend, you had this all-day event that was really a major thing going on there at the track. Um, oh, the model with the competitions. Classic. Yes. Um, yes. When, uh, even even with just the, the Mountaineer Classic, just the one day, uh, I'll, it, this just sort of came into my mind. It's not just the people at the track that are affected. It is everybody in the community because... When you've got something like that, you're going to have, I'm assuming, extra, you know, maybe tablecloths that have to go out and be laundered, or you're printing up extra materials, or somebody's going to go get their hair cut at the barber, or if you're like me, you're going to go somewhere and buy some extra makeup or get your nails done um, <laughs> for for things like that. So I don't chuckle, don't <laughs> chuckle. Yeah, and for me, maybe get some new boots, A new purse. <laughs> Oh, definitely. We're all <laughs> going to get new. Absolutely. Ones. <laughs> but I, I don't think people understand, um, and that's just for one day and, and for one special event. There's there's other special events, but there's also just daily. I mean, you, you you have many people there that are you know have to present themselves in the best possible light and everything, and they don't realize how many people in the community um, and even in surrounding communities uh, that rely on on the business that they receive from track employees, um, you know, from kennel people, um, from the dog food suppliers, uh, you know, just everything, veterinarians, the whole nine yards. So I, I think taking it even one step further, whenever you look at that ripple effect, um a lot of people just don't consider something like that whenever they, when you've got so many people out here saying this, that, and the other. Uh, they don't realize exactly how many businesses and and, and customers are affected 
and, and are utilized for the economy in, in a situation like that. So I'd, I'd like to remind people that it's, it is very much a ripple effect um, that, that would be seen anywhere in that type of situation. Um, other than that, uh, I did want to say something also about uh, whenever you were referring to the term subsidy. Um, I think everyone would probably do really well to look at the term subsidy and, and think about what you said. Yep. Uh, if you don't go, if you don't gamble, you're not being affected by it. Is that that's basically what you're saying? I'd like to clarify that. Correct. Correct. Yes, a hundred percent correct. Okay, uh, I wanted people to really understand that. You know, if you walk into the casino and you're doing gambling or whatever, that's that's who's being affected uh, and going into the purse money. It's not just your average citizen. So that's something I really wanted to reiterate there. Exactly. I mean, and it, and it helps out the economy. It helps. It's it's just so frustrating what the what the antis do with the, where they take things and they can twist it. And that's why you know I think we even heard earlier the journalist when he was talking about Richard. But their sometimes their frustration, and you can see it in the greyhound racing community. Our frustration um, when when the other side is getting out with their stories, and we've we I think really have got to do better in communicating and educating the public. And we need to, I think, a little bit step back from immediately ridiculing people and calling them names. What we need to do is educate them so that they understand we got to give them a desire to want to learn, to see that these are not just great pets. They're awesome athletes. And they come from a long tradition uh, a well-thought-of tradition. Um, you know, the... Um, Don't hit me. <laughs> I didn't hit you. Um, I think any of us who have gone to Abilene recently versus those of us who had been going 15 years ago, it is a town that is sadly becoming reflective of the change and lack of greyhound racing. The town is, as both Steve and TJ pointed out, this ripple effect that it's not just the dogs, it's not just the farms, it's not just the tracks. It's the community. It's the towns. These things are all going to be affected. And no one's thinking... Well, hotels are going to be affected. Exactly. You know, yep. if, if people aren't going into them, gas stations aren't going to be as busy. It's just so much of a ripple effect. Well, just look at here, right here, just miles from where we're at right now sits the old Phoenix Greyhound Park, and you can look around around there what has happened. Um, and it, what's really sad is that one time, Phoenix Greyhound Park, what you, and anyone who's been here sees how big of a facility it, it is. It provided a great atmosphere with some fantastic racing. And uh, they had a dinner theater yeah, there, dinner too. Yeah, dinner theater, uh, everything. And it got ruined by some people who do not like greyhound racing. And there are people that were put out of jobs or had to go get new job training, which then cost us, the taxpayers, money. Um, many of them then were on unemployment, which then cost us taxpayers money. It, it, it just ticks me off. But before we get, you know, get too much further or getting close to the end of the show, Steve, with uh, West Virginia – is there things people can do, uh, contribute to, to help you out as you, uh, 
you move forward through the legislative session? I know, um, you know, there's always things that are needed. Yeah, I mean, obviously, the West Virginia Kennel Owners Association, they're taking donations, um, which we're going to be using directly to help um, preserve and maintain live racing here in West Virginia. I know there's a Facebook page that we use, Keep uh, West Virginia Greyhounds. And, you know, anyone can reach out to us in terms of getting that information so that they can make a donation. I know, you know, it's shared pretty prominent on a lot of the Greyhound pages in Facebook. Um, obviously, we have PayPal that they can do as well. But the biggest thing is is just to continue to try to educate people. And I, I don't know who said it, but basically in a professional way, not to resort into this uh, name-calling and mud-slinging and um, juvenile banter back and forth. You know, the, and the biggest ambassadors for live racing are the greyhounds and the people who have adopted them and who can basically give true stories about, you know, what their dogs were like, what their dogs were like immediately after they came out of a racing kennel or, or directly from the racetrack. I mean, those those stories are the stories that need to be put out there. Obviously, calls and emails to lawmakers, you know, those types of things um, help. And then, obviously, just kind of go by our direction, you know, when we have calls to action, that type of thing. But, again, um, you know, every little bit helps. You know, the adoption community has been very, very helpful. I know um, in a couple heated legislative sessions that we had that were very close and we were considered big long shots, um, we relied heavily on our adopters, and, and they they answered our calls and, and they basically did whatever we asked of them. And it's basically, they're not gaining any type of monies or purses from greyhounds because obviously they have adopted racers, but they love the breed and they love what their dog is or how their dog acts. And that's a direct result of the live racing industry. Exactly. And Steve, you and I, we've known each other for a long time and I want to thank you for, um, you've always been there to help out. I remember we, uh, one time we were there at the event in West Virginia, and you and I spoke on the same panel. You've always shown a passion yeah. for for listening to the adoption people, for helping out the adoption people. Um, I know you've been uh, helping out one of our listeners here from Arizona, Trish. Hi, Trish. We know you're listening. Uh, we just wanted to say hi. Hi, Trish. Hi, Trish. <laughs> Trish, you got it from all of us. <laughs> But, um, you know, you, you have been a great ambassador, not only for racing, for the dogs, but for adoption. And all of us from the adoption side, we can't thank you enough for everything you've done to help us out. And I think that's why people are willing to jump in and help you in, in, out in West Virginia, because you have given so much to us here in, um, in a, on the adoption side. Well, I appreciate that, but when you really look at it, uh, what the adoption community does in comparison to what I give back. What I give back is very little to what they've done. I mean, you're talking tens of thousands of individuals who have adopted greyhounds, opened their hearts and their homes to these wonderful creatures. And, um, you know, basically they allow us to continue to do what we do. They get a, a purebred greyhound that's been trained. Um, some of them, you know, we put up for adoption immediately. I right. just made arrangements for one to go to the track adoption group that's probably about 18 months old, and some of them are seven, eight, nine-year-old dogs. Um, 
me personally, I think the the ones that we get to keep longer make better pets because they continue to get socialized more and we work with them a little bit more. So they make wonderful pets. Some people want young ones and we have those that they just really aren't successful racers or don't have a lot of desire to race. And I I hate to cut you off on there, but we've got to go, everyone. Hug those hounds. Have a great weekend. Everyone, Oh. Thank you for listening this week to Greyhounds Make Great Pets. Please join your hosts, Rory Goray, TJ Beter, and Kathy Goray for another edition of our program next Friday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time and 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a wonderful week.